to the 11th episode of Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul. I'm Nico Barraza, and today we're joined by Miss Tani Lyons. Tani is a psychotherapist based out of Oakland, California, an integrative therapist and coach who views safe healing and creative connection as the foundation to a well-lived life and is devoted to understanding and helping folks create healthier and intentional relationships, including the one they have with themselves. Now, I'll link to all of Tani's social media uh, in the show notes, as well as her website. Um, I've been following her for a while now. I actually first came across Tani via John Kim, the angry therapist. She works uh, with him in his TAT labs, which is his sort of online uh, group therapy counseling sessions uh, with a, a various uh, array of psychotherapists and and coaches. Um, Tani's a, a brilliant individual. I really value her take on a lot of things. We've had a lot of very deep and meaningful conversations, uh, both on the phone and over social media, just talking about a bunch of different theories. And uh, she always brings a ton of light to a situation and open-mindedness. Uh, and I really value her perspective on, on pretty much everything. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with Tani. Uh, she was very gracious to come on the show and discuss a lot of things with us. I mean, we cover a host of things from monogamy, polyamory, contentment in modern society. Uh, we mostly focus on relationships, but we cover a ton of stuff. And I think you guys are really going to like this, this conversation. Um, we hope to have you on again. And without further ado, Tawny Lyons. Well, Tawny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I, I, you are the first sort of mental health professional I've had on. So I feel like that's a, that's a Ooh, pretty gold star on. in my, in my <laughs> book, the pressure is on. Yeah. And you're definitely not going to be the last that's for sure. So I'm excited to talk to you, um, today, but we talked before we started recording and what we're going to focus on specifically is kind of the idea of conscious relationships and branching off that. So before we get into that, do you kind of want to just introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into what you do? Sure. So I'm Tawny Lyons. I am a therapist and coach, uh, primarily seeing clients in California. And oh my God, I could, I could take a whole podcast to explain how I became a therapist. <laughs> um, but basically the wounded healers path. So I went through um, lots of different paths for my own healing of depression and anxiety um, in my life from the time I was pretty young. And then I got really interested in relationships and how to make them work. And along came this school called California Institute of Integral Studies that Alan Watts was one of the founders of back in the day. And um, yeah, I just kind of took this spiritual or transpersonal dive into myself. It's a very experiential school. I was grateful to find. And before that, I'd found yoga and uh, meditation and writing and art. And um, I'm just happy to be where I'm at now. Yeah. That's, you just rang a huge bell for me. That's the same school that's launching uh, the MAP study with psychedelics mm -hmm. as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, yeah. Or mm -hmm. one of them, right? Or no, sorry. They I are. Mean. I believe they're the main school that's doing it right now. They're in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, they and already Naropa have a psychedelic. Naropa is with MAPS? Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think those are the two, two mm. programs. I, I just mentioned that because I have a, a friend who's a breast cancer surgeon in Sedona, um, Dr. Beth Dupree, and she is one of like the first couple hundred practitioners in the U.S. that is going to be going to that school pretty soon to be trained and be certified to use, um, so I think specifically MDMA, but in, this is totally a tangent, but in like end of life 
care. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that school. I just wanted to say is like really well known for being a pretty phenomenal place. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. It is a really great place. It's super magical. Um, yeah, I've heard a, a lot about that the that specific certificate and psilocybin being used um, at end of life and it being really transformational. That's beautiful. Yeah, well, that must have been a cool experience to. And you're still sort of based out of the Bay Area, right? Even though you're in Arizona now. I'm not in Arizona. Um, I don't live here. I'm just visiting my family at the moment, but I live in Oakland still, and I do love the Bay Area. I love coastal woodsy California. It just feels so nurturing to me. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. I actually went to grad school in San Francisco and whenever I get to go back and visit, um, it's a, it's a nice treat to actually have some moisture on your skin and not have a, <laughs> have like dry knuckles and dry nose, like the standard mm-hmm. Arizona weather. Yeah. Um, although Sedona and Flagstaff are incredible too. Yeah. They're both gems. Completely yeah. agree. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about conscious relationships or conscious partnerships. Like let's define that before we start getting into it. Mm, yeah. So I would define a conscious relationship or partnership as two or more people who are really invested in their own wounds, their own past, their own histories, what they're bringing to the table, they're aware of their needs and want to co-create a relationship that's really intentional and um, is different from the status quo. That's perfect. This is perfect, quick synopsis. And it's interesting you say like two people, it's like, you know, so many people that have that come to therapy or have relational trauma. I think quite often what I see is it's like one person that really want something to change and then and this is generality but then there's one person that may not be interested in going to therapy or may not be interested in sort of altering a behavior or looking at their trauma and and i mean i would say and correct me if i'm wrong that's probably not a conscious partnership because both people have to be showing up and have to be putting in at least some level of work on an emotional level to be considered like conscious correct yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. I, I am also curious and wondering about how that dynamic can shift too. So maybe yeah. in the beginning, it's something more like a push-pull dynamic where one person is not interested. But then once they begin doing their own work or seeing how their partner is shifting, transforming, then they are more invested, which can also happen too, right? But yeah, right. in general, I would say it takes people having that as baseline foundational shared value of this is going to be a conscious growth oriented shared value relationship. So the relationship doesn't necessarily have to start like that, but both people at some point have to sort of grow and want and get into that. Right. And you just brought up like one person sort of looking at themselves and that might influence the other. This again, might be a little bit of tangent of where we're trying to take this conversation, but what, like what happens if, you know, one partner doesn't, you know, cause some people just don't believe they have anything wrong or they don't want to change, you know, is that something that like, should everyone that's in that relationship just look for a different partner? Or is there, is that something where like the person that sort of is growth oriented or is looking at their trauma, they can be with this person. They just have to accept them where they are and where they're at. And that's just, you know, going to be their partner. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately it just depends on what the people want in their lives. Right. Because mm-hmm. Um, two people could have totally different interests in their lives. Maybe one person hates 
basketball, but the other one is in the NBA, right? (laughs) And then they just have to come to terms with, okay, we have totally different lifestyles, but we can share these other things going on. So if that person is okay with being more spiritual or conscious or whatever, however they want to explain it, and they don't mind that their partner is not along for the ride, then good for them, you know? Mm. But if it's something where the person is feeling like the other person is is not invested or not showing up, then I think it's really important to recognize we cannot change other people. That's a Mm -hmm. cliche that's so, so true, Mm -hmm. right? Like many cliches. (laughs) Um, We cannot change other people. We can only change ourselves. And so at that point, yeah, taking a good look within and seeing, is this something that I want to continue onward in, in this way or not? I completely agree. Do you think that, you know, when you're truly in a conscious partnership and obviously there's no stagnation, everything's evolving. So you can go from probably conscious to a little bit of unconscious in certain trauma situations. But do you think that in like a truly conscious partnership, both people are, um, I guess at a baseline sort of showing up to listen to the other person, even if, you know, they are not necessarily interested in that, you know, because at least that's what kind of peaks in my mind. It's like, you know, if one person is really into therapy and they've been going to therapy a long time before the relationship started um, and then the other partner is not, and they're like, oh, I never went to therapy. I never thought I, you know, had anything to work on. I just, I'm a happy, genuinely a happy person, Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, let's say partner A, for instance, the one that goes to therapy is like, well, I'd really, you know, like you to start coming to therapy with me. I mean, would you say that like, it takes a conscious partnership takes at least like a, a, a general curiosity in growth um to sort of even reach like a conscious level because if someone just if there's a a partner that just you know doesn't think that they have any room to grow or don't think that they have anything to work on that that sort of just raises a red flag in my mind being like well this person although they might be accepted by someone that you know is fine with that like you said that that meets their needs Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to believe that that's like truly a conscious human being because i I believe like we all pretty much have continuous things to work on Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? (laughs) Well, I think that anybody can have a conscious relationship, but it doesn't have to look one way. So if I was in a relationship Mm, with somebody and I didn't care about therapy and they didn't care about therapy, but we were consciously saying, we don't care about therapy, we're never going (laughs) to do therapy, then that would be a conscious relationship because they're communicating about it as opposed to leaving it unsaid. And also another thing too that I'm thinking of is, Yes, absolutely. I think therapy is wonderful. I'm a therapist. It would be awful if I said it wasn't, right? And I love it. But at the same time, there's so many other routes to personal development, to growth, to depth work, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, therapy is like pretty new in comparison to a lot of other healing modalities. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I I guess I use therapy as like a a general term and I shouldn't. It really is like growth work is I guess what I meant to say at at some level, you know, like have to find some way of working on growth and it could be through meditation. It could be simply through, you know, talking to one another, reading about books, talking about the things you've learned. It doesn't have to be facilitated by sort of Western therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, would you say that like it, they both individuals have to be growth oriented, at least at a base framework or, or no, they just have to sort of be on the same dance, the same, the same page. It could just be like, stay the same, but we're both both good with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that they would be on the same page. I think maybe, you know, I would say, yes, I want a growth oriented relationship or maybe a lot of Mm -hmm. people within circles rerun in or something, but as long as people are talking about it, that's what I think is really incredible Mm -hmm. because otherwise we just sort of fall into these containers or frameworks that might not actually fit for us. 
So the consciousness comes into play as I see it as just, you know, making the unconscious conscious, which is depth work in and of itself. 100%. Yeah. And I I really appreciate you bringing up the the cliche term of like, you know, you can never change another person because I've experienced that, you know, in my last romantic relationship is where I felt continuously like I was trying to change this person, Mm -hmm. you know? And and I was conscious that it wasn't, you know, something that was healthy. And I didn't, and even though I'd bring up stuff like, I really want you to meet me on this level, or I really, you know, want you to show up for me in this way. It just wasn't in her capacity at the time, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think it, it's like sort of at that point, I'm trying to get to like, you know, if someone's not meeting a need, for instance, like if like I'm a person that really sort of needs like emotional depth, like I really want to be able to engage with my partner on a deeper level. We don't, we necessarily don't have to go to therapy together, although I, I completely support that. I love that. Um, but I definitely want to be with someone that's growth oriented, you know, spiritually, emotionally, because it's funny when I was younger, I had like this mental checkbox with what I was looking for. And, you know, at the top was like very attractive, you know, that was like in my like early, late teens, mm-hmm. early twenties. And, um, you know, very intelligent, like very goal oriented, very athletic, like very successful in A, B and C, you know, financially stable, independent. Um, <laughs> so and many. since I've gotten older, oh dude, my list is fucking long. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably not fair, no judgment. Uh, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. I, I'm well aware. I've been in therapy a long time now. They're like, wow, you have, um, you have a, definitely a lot of standards on that list there. Um, I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh, it's almost, I'm almost like flipped that inversely. And like the top of the list is like sort of emotional capacity and like, you know, looking at someone's childhood and trauma. And like, that's almost, those are almost like cues that I listen for when I talk to people now, because I really, even, even in friendships, like I, I really want to learn from my partner and not just be a teacher because I want it to be a partnership. Yeah. And I, at, at that, I, that's the level I want to learn at is like, you know, because I've been in relationships with people that are amazing athletes or, you know, um, gorgeous or super hyper intelligent, you know, academically, but there's always been like that sort of piece missing. And that big piece missing was like the deep emotional connection, you know, someone being able to sit with their own trauma and my own and talk about it and see each other you know, in my, in my mind, see each other for what we are, but also want to make each other better and want to grow mm-hmm. together, you know, and sort of also encourage and push each other mm-hmm. too. Um, I think that's like just my athlete, a type personality in the background, <laughs> like always wanting to progress, you know, it's not for everybody, but it's definitely what's in my mind. Yeah. So I appreciate you bringing up, like you can never change someone. Cause that's been a hard lesson as an adult that I've had to learn, um, you know, with my own sort of codependent background is, you know, letting go of wanting, you know, you can, you can certainly give someone a book that you love that's changed your life, but it's not, it's not guaranteed this person's going to open it or receive mm-hmm. it the same way you did, Totally. you know? And I think once I learned that lesson, I kind of let go a little bit in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if that resonates with you at all, but, and I'm, I'm not, I still haven't fully walked that path. I'm still on it very much. Mm-hmm. So you're but. not enlightened yet. Get with the program. No, I, I, I'm actually <laughs> not floating yet. I'm still sitting on chairs. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. no, it does resonate and I totally hear you, you know, and actually when you were saying something, I'm going to butcher what you said, something along the lines of being in your own pain and then being able to be in theirs with you and, you know, that kind of awareness there. It was reminding me of this poem. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's by Oriah Mountain Dreamer called The Invitation. Dude, I just opened, um, my first podcast with that prose. And I told everyone about the book, specifically page 27, when she talks about our truth. So mm. yes, I'm actually going to read that thing on this show. So continue. Nice. I love that. I need to, book. I need to yeah. listen to that episode. Um, have it framed right behind me actually. Really? 
Whoa. Yeah, the, the whole piece of prose, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's all I had to say about it. <laughs> just the, what Is you were that, saying it just, reminds it just represents, me of it. Yeah. No, I mean, if and, and I told everyone the first podcast, the first like pilot episode, like I told everyone to go read it. And like Tani just reiterated, go read that thing if you haven't read it. Because yeah. A, it's beautiful writing. And B, I mean, it's it's like I've, a lot of pieces of writing have done this for me. But I, when I read it, I consistently go back to it and it still blows, splits my mind open, you know, because she sort of touches as hard as it is everything that's quite important, at least to me in a romantic relationship. You yeah, know? Um, it's profound, which is hard to do. Mm-hmm. Very profound. I mean, it's a long yeah. poem, but yeah, <laughs> no, it's beautiful. It it it's gorgeous. Yeah. I'm actually trying to get her on this podcast. Funny that you bring her up. Mm. Um, Cause, uh, cause I, I've consistently read that book again and again, and it is brilliant. Um, okay. So back to the, the idea of a, of a conscious relationship, how, how do two people that want to build a conscious relationship? And obviously you have to be aware first of all, but two people that want to build one, I know it looks a lot of different ways. You're, that's what I love about you. You're so, um, you understand so many different facets of like the differences in society. So even though you're a therapist and you're, you're trained in this way, you don't think that that's for everyone. You don't, you don't think that that's, that's the path that everyone has to walk on to be healed or be enlightened or grow. And I, and I love that because a lot of people that get stuck and siloed in a profession, like the more educated we get, the more we think that this is the niche that everyone needs to walk. Right. Yeah. And so I really, I really appreciate that about you. Cause that's certainly what I've gotten off you via social media, which I've been like, Oh, this is a person that's genuinely just trying to help people grow and heal. And it doesn't necessarily have to be what you're selling, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but Thank for two you. people that, that are in a relationship, whether it's monogamous or polyamorous, and we'll get to that in a second here, but for partners, you know, how do people approach that, especially in like a new relationship? You know, one of the things that I think in my mind is like in that first year or two, that's like this romantic stage that, you know, Disney picks is like, <laughs> you know, everything's great. Yeah. You know, sex is awesome, hopefully. And, you know, you, you just, you're always spending, you're spending a ton of time with each other and everything's great. And then you kind of get into that monotony of you know, mm-hmm. a real mm-hmm. relationship, mm-hmm. what sort of love feels like when you, you know, wake up every morning after a couple of years next to the same person. How do you, you know, grow into a conscious partnership and how do you maintain that? And I know this is a very multifaceted yeah. approach, but like, what are some starting blocks for people that really, you know, two partners that really want to invest? Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing that I'm thinking of is if you can beginning the endeavor towards conscious relationship or conscious partnership before the projections fall away, before that two-year mark or nine-month mark or five-year mark or whatever, when you're like, damn, like this person is not the fairy tale that I had in my mind, right? So ultimately, it'd be lovely to go into the relationship knowing that that's going to happen. That's just how everything works, like literally the hormones in our bodies, right? The chemical concoction Mm -hmm. that is love. That is what happens, right? Right. So, and then after that, I think, and of course this is going to be biased, but I think really looking at what love means to you and what sex means to you and what intimacy means to you and what the models have been throughout your life, whether that's caretakers, aunties, uncles, um, even fictional characters that you've looked up to throughout your life uh, and how that has mo- and how they have modeled relationships to you and whether that's something that you want to um, continue onward if you want your relationship to look like something like that or you want it to be totally opposite but really becoming aware of 
what your internal working model of love is and what the other person's internal working uh, model of love is. And then trying to figure out now, what are we going to co-create together that's going to tick all the boxes or a lot of the boxes, and then we can have some compromise and, and go from there. No pun intended, but I, I love that you brought up like looking at sort of where your initial relationship and love basis was founded, which is your caretakers or what you were in the love you were raised around, yeah. you know, whether it was, uh, you know, even if it was with a single parent, there, there's some sort of thing you picked mm-hmm. up on. Right. And, but it is possible, right? Like even looking at my own family dynamic to look at the unhealthy parts and want to change those. Cause obviously I, I kind of sort of soaked those up as a sponge as a young child and then looking at the healthy parts and want to keep that. So it's not like a, a this or that situation. Yeah. Like you most certainly can look at it and, and say, Oh, you know, I, I've, these are healthy things. These are like, we're great forms yeah. of communication, but maybe I don't want like the anger and blowing up or the shutting down and running away. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I want to work on those things. Cause I, I definitely see those patterns. No, totally. That's where the juice is. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the consciousness comes into play is it not just saying these are the things that I like, but these are the things that I didn't like. Why, how does it trigger me or what does it activate in me? Do I have those parts in me? Is this how I act when I uh, am angry or when there's a kind of conflict, do I shut down like my mom did or whoever, right? Like looking at those patternings within us because it is internalized. Absolutely. Do you think that like this internal drive to really look deeply in yourself, do you think it exists within everyone innately or how does someone get to this point in their lives? Cause I've asked myself that question a lot. And for me, I think it's really, it was just based on my environment. Like if I were to know, if I wouldn't have met certain people in my life, when I met them, whether they be people walking down the street, mentors, friends, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you on the internet <laughs> about love and relationships, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, I mean, do you think it's really environmental? Like, like, or do you think each of us is it born with this innate curiosity to be better on this like level of, I would say, love and relationships? That's an incredible question. And it's, it kind of is reminding me of the nurture versus nature question, right? And I think how I see it is we do have innate yearning to belong. And so, yeah, depending on the systems that we're born into, and then like you were saying, who we meet along the journey, that kind of changes the path and what we end up seeking. But I am curious about how trauma impacts people and their wanting to reach deeper inside themselves because that can really calcify the yearning where it's no longer safe to do that. It's, it's dangerous to get to know people. Intimacy is dangerous, including intimacy with oneself. Yeah. Very profound. I agree. And it's a hard question to answer. I didn't mean to dump this like philosophical no. existential question. Bring me on all you, the but existentialism. It's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's always been intriguing to me, you know, to try to track that route of when, you know, cause I, I, I was reading, my mom is a librarian and um, you know, when I was young, it was always like, you know, you're bored, go read a book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I read a ton. And I think when I was like 15 or 16, I started really getting into like Buddhism. Cause I was, I was grew up, grew up Catholic and sort of was, you know, like separated from that faith when I was like 12. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, it just wasn't for me. And I started reading like, you know, meditation books, yoga books, Buddhism books. And a lot mm-hmm. of them resonated to me, not so much on every level, but on the level of sort of like acceptance and sort of universalism and, you know, just like how, you know, energy within humans is quite similar with energy in plants and with energy in every living being. And, you know, there's this flow and that that's still sticks with me today. 
although I wouldn't consider myself like a Buddhist specifically, mm-hmm. I'm a very spiritual person, but I've noticed that with my sort of quest on understanding myself, which is self-knowledge or however we want to term it, it the dedication grows almost with my trauma now, mm. you know? So like I've been in two loving relationships and, and both of them that ended, like I was, you know, completely brokenhearted and, and very much didn't want either of them to end. But those relationships sort of cracked another door open in me each time. Mm-hmm. And I had like these, this huge three to four year span of like investing in self-knowledge and growth and going to therapy and really working on my mental and emotional health, just as much as I did as a pro athlete working on my physical health all the time. Yeah. Um, and so I, I almost like say like, yeah, it's totally like a trauma response. Cause I could have completely chosen to shut down, avoid dealing with my own mistakes in those relationships and jumped into another one and kept doing the same thing or avoided all of them altogether, yeah. you know, never gave love another chance. It's very interesting. That is super interesting. Yeah. There's so much that I could say in response to that. I love that you just shared that. I have a really similar path. Remember at 13, let's hear it. I was already getting into it. I didn't even wait. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, at 13, uh, my sister's straight edge vegan boyfriend, he, they were five years older than me, gave me for my birthday Siddhartha and uh, a refused CD. They're like a mm. political punk. And I was already like a little punk at that age, but that was such a pivotal moment in my life, right? And just like you were talking about getting into Buddhism, I think that there are certain moments in our lives that are invitations into deeper ways of being. Um, Mm -hmm. like kind of like the stories that make us right. And I don't know what makes certain people more open to it or not, but yeah, I'm curious about the trauma there or the wounding. If the wound is where the light enters Mm. us and also the community that is around as well. Right. Like if I had community around at that point in my family members that were very spiritual, that kind of uplifted that in me, but if somebody doesn't, maybe they wouldn't go down that road. Yes, totally. I, and I, I love like the, like the light kind of flowing through the wound imagery. Cause in, in my life, I've only ever gotten closer to people that are vulnerable and tell me about their deep wounds, you know, because that's like where I connect with, with folks. So I'm like, this is where our similarities are. You know, this is where like growth and connection are because you can walk to someone and tell them how fantastic and how amazing you are at something X, Y, and Z. And it's great. And people appreciate that. But the, the, at least in my own life, the deepest bonds have been formed when I walk to someone and I'm fully authentic and vulnerable. I'm like, yeah, I, I had success in these parts of my life, but I've experienced loneliness and depression. And, you know, I've made mistakes in loving relationships and I've definitely hurt people that I care about, you know? And when I talk about those experiences and other people, it brings it out of them instantaneously. It's like, yeah. you know, like I'm connected with this human being if they're open to it. Cause of course some people can shut down and just be like, uh, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but the ones that do, you know, that those almost instantly become lifelong friends, uh, in my life yeah. because it's, it's, it's rare, you know, it's not super rare. Thankfully, I think it's becoming more, um, you're seeing more people, you know, really invest in that. But I mean, it's a beautiful thing when, when you can, you know, even like someone like yourself, you know, who I, you know, first found you through watching, uh, you know, some of John Kim's the angry therapist's videos, and then just sent you a DM on Instagram. I was like, Hey, I like your work. And I've, since then I've chatted with you about a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. and um that's kind of similar to how i've met you know other folks in life when they're just so open to talking about their trauma not in a way where they're just like you know walk into a room and just blah, you know just <laughs> <laughs> you know tell everyone oh these are my problems it, it's 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 a very authentic way of like being very honest about 
our humanness, Mm. you know, very honest about our imperfections and not in a judgmental way of like using it to sort of, you know, cascade us into depression or anxiety, but really to be honest about what we've experienced, what it's done to us emotionally or physically, and what we're doing to sort of alter at least the unhealthy parts of that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that brings to mind that I want to ask you about too, is like the idea of balance within like the growth, the growth mindset in a relationship or in a conscious partnership. Cause I find myself, I'm a very much like change driven person or growth driven person, you know? So I'm consistently trying to get better at whatever I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that's both good and bad because I'm probably never content, which I've realized <laughs> in my relationships and in my work, right. Never satisfied, um, which can, you know, lead you down a whole dark path yeah. of, you know, a bunch of self-sabotaging and never thinking you're, you're good enough or someone else isn't good enough. Right. But then it also is sort of fuels my drive to do things like this. Mm-hmm. But I guess in your words and in your mind, where do we find that balance both as individuals and in a partnership of like doing the work quote unquote mm-hmm. or growing and also like allowing us time to just be too. Yeah. I mean, what I'm thinking about right now is in recovery, they say that relapse is a part of recovery, right? And you're an athlete. So you know mm-hmm. that rest days are a part of, you know, you getting better at what you do. And so I think that you can plan it out in relationships or when things are not yeah. just like propelling forward, just inwardly acknowledging this is okay. This is, you know, growth is not always linear, right? And yes, not just right. burning that shit to the ground when it's not going full speed ahead. <laughs> Completely. And that that's such a good answer and a good analogy to like, you know, as athletes, you always have rest days, you know, because that's when you make recovery. You don't, you can't just train every day because you're, you're breaking, you know, you're breaking yourself literally and, and, and mentally and emotionally. And I find that in a, in a relationship too. But, but would you say that also both people have to sort of communicate that? Cause if someone's just like, yeah, I'm going to take a rest day today. <laughs> and the other partner's like, you know, I really need you to show up for me. You know, that, that's something that, again, like you were speaking of, it's like, you kind of have to be dancing the same dance mm-hmm. or at least trying to, yeah. right. Because one person can't be taking a rest day and the other one's not aware of it. And then that creates, you know, conflict. Yeah, totally. I mean, emotional communication is so incredibly important. And unfortunately in Western society, we see it as a soft skill when in reality, it's such Mm -hmm. an incredible, intimate leadership skill, really. So if you can, if you have the availability or the skillful means to do so, communicating that you're having an off or rest day, but then also being the other partner if some being able to notice that everyone is not going to be at a hundred percent all the time, especially if they've had trauma, which everybody's had some sort of trauma, right? If they're in, if they're triggered mm-hmm. or not in their window of tolerance, being a little bit kinder to them. If you notice that maybe they aren't a hundred, but they're not able to yet communicate it. Yes. Oh my God. So much. I, that reminds me when you say like, um, I always bring this guy up in my podcast and I feel like I'm giving him free airtime. I really want to get him on here, but I read a ton of Alain de Botton's work. I love and him. He has in almost, oh, he, he's, he's my man. He's, he's my man. I'm bringing a couple people that work for him on, but I really want to get him on too. But he always, in, in most of his chapters and his, his books, he has this sort of, especially his relationship books that I'm almost finished with right now. Um, one of the chapters is partner as child. And he, he talks about I already see you just being like, yes, right. It's like, you know, looking at your partner and yourself and looking at each other's inner child and knowing that like, 
you know, trying to understand each other's triggers and each other's patterns. And the only way to do that is by verbally talking about yeah. it, you know, and when you're not triggered, you can't do it when you're angry and you're pissed off because you're just not going to be hearing it. You know, you're already going to be responding in your trauma instead of responding in your peace. Totally. And, you know, he brings up a lot. He's like, you need to have conversations on, even on days you're feeling great and say like, Hey, you know, when you, when you bring this up and it really invokes this in me, like, let's talk about it instead of just assuming that the under, other person is going to understand you because they love you, mm-hmm. you know, and just assuming that, well, they'll just, they'll just get me, you know, because this, we've been together five years and they, and they know me, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I, I like when, when, when I read those words, I'm like, yes, dude, like this is exactly, and specifically when I, when I look at like men, like in masculinity in sort in Western culture, like it's very much, you know, especially how I was raised, um, very much like stoic, like, you know, you don't really need to talk about your emotions. Yeah. You know, you just kind of are the provider for lack of a better word. Um, obviously my, my, my idea of masculinity has changed very much so since I was a kid, but a lot of men still sort of adhere to this like traditional, you know, especially in the U S American masculinity, yeah. you know, man up. um, mm-hmm. right. Man up, walk it off, you know, grow um, a pair. like toughen up. <laughs> grow a pair. Yeah. All these different like colloquial terms that like, when you really think about what they mean, it's like, yo, are we really teaching young men? Like how to really be better, you know, how to be better men, how to be better fathers, how to be better partners, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that, you know, part of what Alan is saying and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is what you say a lot too, is like, you know, you can like, when you use the word soft, like being, being soft and malleable is not the opposite of being strong. Mm, yes. You know, being vulnerable is not the opposite of being strong. Like you can most certainly still defend yourself and still be, you know, in that term of a man, but be, you know, caring, be vulnerable, want to grow, want to be a better partner, you know, and, and show that side of, for lack of a better term, like your femininity, mm-hmm. you know, cause this is something that's brought up a lot. And it took me a while to sort of wrap my head around how we use femininity and masculinity to describe sort of different behavioral traits, mm-hmm. you know, cause I, I just, always assume that it was just humanness because each of us has different parts of humanness within us, you know? Um, because I know, you know, there's a lot of the soft things in, in healthy forms of masculinity, Absolutely. you know, like, and, but I feel like, you know, being a man myself on this, like, you know, growth journey, the, the biggest steps I've taken is when I realize how sort of societal masculinity has affected my patterns in relationships and my responses, mm-hmm. you know, and that directly relates going back to childhood, you know, my parenting dynamic. And the good things that I got from those relationships and and the things that weren't great mm-hmm. that were also influenced by cultural mas- masculinity. So. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think from what I've heard from a lot of men, it can be really challenging to hear, a, not challenging to hear about toxic masculinity, but challenging to believe that it's inherently wrong to be masculine. I've been hearing that a lot lately because I think masculinity is kind of going through this almost rebranding right now. What does it actually Mm -hmm. mean? If we aren't saying man up or grow a pair, what are we saying? And I think just like you were saying, these traits aren't necessarily biologically, or you didn't say this exactly, but I guess I'm kind of just vibing on what you're saying. Um, Masculine or feminine, Mm -hmm. they're human, right? So of course there are biological differences. That's important to note. But at the same time, you know, we all are soft. We are all receptive. And so it's how you want to present in your masculinity, what that looks like. And then there, and that is really empowering, I think, to recognize that because you can have whatever polarity you want to in a relationship. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you have to be the 
hypermasculine one, maybe you prefer to have to be more stereotypically feminine. Not you, but you know, the yeah. royal you, I guess. No, totally. And and I think that it can also change in a relationship too, because it, it can seesaw, right? Yeah. I think a lot of times when I speak to um, you know, for instance, male friends that I played college sports with who are very much still stuck in your traditional masculinity. I ask, uh, I asked a couple of them, like, you know, do you, why do you act this way in a certain situation? A lot of them are, well, because, you know, I'm being, I'm being strong. And I'm like, are you being strong because you really want to be that way? Or do you think you're being influenced by society or by how you're raised? You know, cause I think when we look deep down, uh, a lot of people, you know, would open up more if they didn't feel this sort of dogmatic weight of what a man is or what a woman is, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that as human beings, the beautiful thing of consciousness is that we're instantaneously malleable. You know, we can, we can change at the drop of a dime if we so wish to, you know, it it just really takes our will and then our consciousness to be focused on being like, no, I'm not going to respond in this way. You know, I'm really going to work and I'm going to catch that pattern. And, you know, when I look at, you know, how masculinity is evolving, like there are forms that are of masculine that are toxic. And so totally, you know, spot on term, but I also hesitate to use that term too much because there's a lot of things about masculinity that aren't toxic, Mm -hmm. you know, at all. And they're wonderful and they're beautiful. And I like, um, working with Connor Beaton and then, uh, listening to, uh, Francis Weller. Mm -hmm. Have you heard some of his stuff? He's been on, um, Mark Groves' podcast and then, and then Connor's man talks podcast. He, he said this thing really beautiful when he was on beautifully, when he was on, um, I think it was on Mark's podcast, but he was like, we don't really have to define masculinity. He's like, that's sort of the problem. It's that we're saying that like to be masculine is this, he's like, masculinity is going to be different for everybody whether you're male or female Mm -hmm. you know and the point is is like we need to be looking at sort of what is healthy for us and our society to be portraying and then those things will sort of fall into masculinity already you know like this over aggressiveness or this huge like aggressive response that sort of embodies like you know males a lot like in certain situations that might be healthy but in a lot of situations it's not healthy you know and your response is basically to get angry or to you know you know, want to fight someone or something like that. Right. And, um, of course, like in certain situations you are defending people you care about, or you're in a situation where there's no other option, totally get it. Cause I grew up in that kind of area, but I did also looking at my own childhood, realize that I was a pretty angry kid, you know, who grew up, you know, getting in a lot of fights, not causing them, but I definitely like didn't shy away from getting in fights. And a lot of that was resorted a sort of because of my like view on what, you know, a man is or what, or what masculinity yeah. means, you know? And since then that has evolved quite a bit. It's changed a lot, you know? And I think that that's, that's sort of what you touched on is like masculinity. The idea of what a man is, is, is really evolving right now. I mean, there's a lot of things in our culture, in our world are evolving. I think the, the idea of what a man is, is evolving. is just a byproduct because I think there's sort of this collective consciousness that's changing within society because you know, for lack of a better word, we sort of have to, mm-hmm. you know, we've been muddling for a little bit. Um, but I really like that you bring that up and I didn't mean to sort of harp on the, the masculine no, during this conversation. Really but important. Yeah. 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 It's also interesting how that proliferates in, in relationships too, and in, in dynamics. And of course I'm talking of, about a heterosexual relationship too, but I think that, you know, that this stuff still exists within homosexual relationships too, oh, you know, in, in different, different avenues, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to recognize that those toxic masculine traits can also be within women. Um, and that it, you know, there are toxic feminine traits as well, right? Like the death Mm. mother or the, the 
over um, involved kind of enmeshment that can some uh, can some, sometimes happen with with that kind of yeah. feminine energy or codependency, right? So I think. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's complicated because so much of I don't know if you're into polarity work, but there's also a lot of people who um, are into studying and practicing the feminine or masculine or the yin and yang dynamics, especially sexually within relationship. And it can be incredibly profound and opening and fun. And I wonder if we need different ways to describe it other than feminine or masculine, because it kind of muddles what we're talking about here in a way, at least for me. I love that you bring that up. And I was hoping that you did because I was really planning on bringing up that I, my main problem with the ideas of masculine and feminine is that it, there's just not enough there, you know, like the human beings are very complex. And I think that like, I think you're the first person that I've ever heard bring up toxic femininity because I believe that does ex- exist just like toxic masculinity does. But that's why I sort of always like to focus on humanness because, you know, like there's so many different ways we could take this, but I think like ultimately it's sort of what makes you a better human being and a better partner. Mm -hmm. And if you sort of work towards that, then your masculinity, your femininity, either of those in polarity is sort of going to be more balanced naturally because you're sort of working on dealing with your emotions in a healthy manner. Like, looking at your addictive behavior patterns or, you know, looking at ways you, you use to, you know, escape mm-hmm. from having to sit with your trauma or your thoughts, or your feelings and how you respond to your partner, or how they respond to you. And so if you focus on like being a better human or humanness or humanity, yeah. you know, then, then it's sort of like, it, it, it's less biased to like a masculine or a feminine trait, but inherently both of those things are sort of worked on congruently because you're working on all parts of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You're, Does that make sense? Yeah, you're working on... Or my bullshit? No, I mean... <laughs> no, it makes sense to me that you're working on all the different parts of yourself. Again, I think it might be something super individual. and But yes, I think in general, it can be really helpful to just look at the different parts in yourself as opposed to just labeling them as masculine, mm. feminine, good or bad, toxic or not. Um, I also think it's really important too to note that I think... I am assuming that a lot of people don't talk about toxic femininity because we live in a patriarchal society. Yes. So there's inherently a power bias there. So I think it can be tricky to talk about, but I also do think it's really important. And then also totally unrelated, but still within the same frame of masculinity and femininity. um, I think I love what you're saying about just becoming a better human. (laughs) And sometimes what I've heard from folks is that when it feels so equal in a relationship, and this isn't so PC, but I'm going to go there, that sometimes the sexuality cannot be as exciting. And so that's where I Mm. think a lot of people end up bringing in the feminine or masculine, how they call it polarity or the two poles of that kind of um, either receptive or action oriented, if we were to call it that way, those kind of energies, like the excitement, the friction within a relationship. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you need friction, I guess, to have like a healthy sexual relationship? Is that, I think you so. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. I believe so. And I know that Esther Perel, um, and a lot of other sex re- researchers talk about that. And, um, yeah. 
you know, of course, there's going to be probably some people who don't believe that or experience that. But in general, yeah, you need that. uh, You need to be able to light your match on something, right? You need something there. Right. So this brings up a big question because I I agree with you, but I don't, and I don't know this answer. um, And I won't try to act like I do, but you know, you, so you need friction for a healthy sex life, but in a conscious partnership, you're looking for balance on the most part, you know, like it can be a seesaw, but you're trying to sort of meet each other where you're at and grow. Mm-hmm. So how do you parallel that and, and have both? Cause that's a pretty hard task, right? Like, cause once you reach maybe, you know, let's say an enlightened level of a conscious relationship and you're really on the same page, how do you still maintain that friction to have a healthy sex life? Cause that's obviously super important. Well, it depends on what you're into sexually. I guess if you're, if your sex yeah. life is great and you have a conscious relationship, then no, you know, no need to talk about it. But if you're feeling that kind of right. lukewarm existence within the sexual mm. realm in your relationship, there's lots of things you can do. You can obviously go to sex therapist or coach. Kink is really right. incredible for that, you know, like creating really safe environments to explore things that maybe in your day-to-day life, you wouldn't feel comfortable exploring. Maybe you want to be really submissive or maybe you want to be really dominant and that's exciting to you and you can do that within this uh really healing container with somebody that you trust and that can be transformative totally i find it hard to believe that after 10 or 20 years of relationship that not every relationship experience sort of that lukewarmness you know i mean that like i i would i mean it it would blow my mind if there if i talk to someone that, that never does but that i'm sure it probably does exist but you know, I feel like it, everyone has to, cause it's almost like that. Um, you know, when I'm relating it back to childhood, you get a new toy, you're just like, yay. And you're, you know, you're playing with that toy for, let's say two weeks or a month at your attention spans pretty short as a child and probably shorter as an adult <laughs> nowadays. But, um, you know, and then after that two months, you, this, the toy kind of sits in the back of the room, you know, you might take it out once in a while, you know, and play with it, but it's sort of just back there and it's just not as important. It doesn't give you that sort of rush and that excitement. And that's when a lot of infidelity happens for many reasons, but it's, you know, because it's like, and Esther talks about this, right? She's like, a lot of times it's like this person doesn't, it's not that they don't love this person, but a lot of times it's just like the excitement or this person's not showing up in a way that they want to. There's the communications breakdown. They're not meeting each other on that conscious partnership level. So the sexual intimacy also suffers. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I guess, do you think like there, I mean, are there, there's some relationships that you've like witnessed or seen that don't ever have to deal with that. Cause I feel like I, I've, I haven't met a person yet that hasn't been like, yeah, after 20 years of marriage, you know, things got a little boring and we had to figure out something <laughs> to make it exciting. Yeah. I mean, I haven't witnessed anybody that have, hasn't had that experience, but some people are asexual yeah. or it's just sure. not that big of a deal for them. But yeah, in general, and I think it can, it can be after a year even or five years, whatever. And then it just, it's up to right. people to decide how they want to spice it up or what they want to explore and making it a fun Yeah adventure and even planning sex can be a fun adventure. hundred percent agree. And would you say that like the key to that is, is communicating to each other? Cause I think a lot of people, you know, they just, they don't even communicate what they're feeling. Like, you know, a lot of people, if they're literally, for instance, you know, um, feeling sort of like less pleasured in the bedroom or, you know, it's not the same as it was a year ago. A lot of people feel um, ashamed to bring it up because they don't want to hurt their partner's feelings, mm-hmm. you know, or they don't want to, you know, create a co- conflict in the relationship. Yeah. But if it's a conscious partnership, you know, the other person 
it, it wouldn't take it as an attack. They'd be like, oh, this is my partner trying to tell me that like they want to work on something so that we can maintain our health or our relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not sort of a, a critique as it is like a, hey, we should like, you know, try this out mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, I think communication is really key. I also think the way that you communicate about it is really key um, because it's sensitive. It's sensitive subject Mm -hmm. matter, you know, and sometimes uh, I've noticed that men can feel like their sexuality and conquering even with one person is really attached to their worth as a man. And then also women can often feel like their desirability is based on their worth. So just really being aware of that when you're communicating if you can. And I've definitely screwed that up, you know? So, Me too. yeah. Me too. And I, it, it's, it's wonderful you bring that up because that sort of sets the premise to talk about, you know, it, it's good to get into that situation having already talked about communication skills with your partner, you know, cause that way you're sort of entering this really touchy conversation about your sex life um, that can be perceived in multitude of different ways with skills because you've already talked about things that are trauma traumatic or, you know, um, you know, deep with your partner. And it's not just the first time you're jumping into that yeah. straight up saying that like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm not really having a great time anymore. I don't, you know, feel as attracted to you like physically or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, these things that, you know, can potentially really hurt people's oh feelings God, yes. if you say it in a certain <laughs> way. Right. Or immediately going so, to, are you not attracted to me anymore? If you're not having sex, yeah. you know, like, or, or, or do you not love or me do you anymore? Not love me anymore? You know? Yeah. Just, no, just minding where your own insecurity is coming up when you're communicating yes. around it, because, um, that, that can be triggering, you know, especially if people have had past relational trauma, it can put the yep. other person into a space where it's hard for them to communicate. And then maybe they say something mean defensiveness and, Oh, yes. So conscious communication. <laughs> You've mentioned that a couple of times. And yes, it's an absolute yeah. key piece, I think, slash challenging as hell. And do you think people can get there having had no training like outside? Like, do you think people can do it themselves or, or like should people really try to seek out a sex therapist or see a therapist to get those skills or read a certain book? Or do you think people can legitimately like knock this out of the park without any help? I think that help is really important, whether it's talking to people and, you know, maybe not going to therapy. I mean, it would be cool to go to therapy, of course, but like you can read books on it. You can do yes, no, maybe Mm -hmm. checklists around um, Mm -hmm. kink. uh, If you're into kink or just sexuality in general, what feels good to you can share that with a partner. That can be a great way to begin. Nonviolent communication is incredible to learn how to speak with I feel statements and requesting needs and not taking things so personal and um, coming from a non-defensive place. There's so many resources out Mm -hmm. there, some of them free, you know, and also communicating. I love earlier Mm -hmm. when you talked about bringing, uh, talking about masculinity with men, because I think it's really important to start those conversations and around sexuality too, uh, when, if you can vulnerably, because people have a lot to share. And I think we can learn a lot from other people too. Yes, completely agree. And thanks for pointing that out. I think that, you know, I think within the past five years, I've had more conversations on masculinity with men in my life. A lot of the men in my life are, you know, very open-minded, working on themselves, soul-searching kind of brothers. But of course, there are men in my lives that, you know, aren't as into that 
or are completely sort of unaware that they have any piece of you know toxic masculinity that they need to work on. Yeah. And those conversations I've found to be the hardest ones, obviously, because again, you you don't want to go into the conversation wanting to change someone yeah. because as you and I both know, that's just not mm-hmm. going to happen unless someone wants to change. Yeah. But you you should we should still be talking and having conversations, mm-hmm. you know. And so even to sort of start that conversation about masculinity from a curious perspective, and I I really like how you brought up the I feel. Um, sort of uh, how how it is state sort of how something is affecting you as opposed to you're making me feel what you're doing is doing this, you know, because I feel like I used to approach and, and, and this is, I'm still much a work in progress with this practice, but that's very much sort of was my initial is like, what you're doing is making me feel this way. And I thought I was communicating well, you know, I was like, this is healthy. This is like, I'm as a man, I'm communicating myself. I'm staying calm. I'm trying to do this. Like, not overly emotionally, but not overly logically either, just explaining what I'm feeling. But also, you know, your word and your rhetoric matters, mm-hmm. right? And I think specifically when you're conscious of your partner's triggers, if they have a low sense of self-worth specifically, or they're triggered with being critiqued, you know, as, as many people are, it does really matter how you present it to them, right? And it takes someone, it, take, it takes a lot of restraint to not just be like, wait a minute, what you're doing is making me feel this way. And to consciously sort of plan your words before they come out of your mouth and say, you know, I'm feeling like this mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of working on them to get to resolution as opposed to, you know, pointing a finger, even if it is warranted, it just might not at the end of the day, get the result you want to have a healthier, you know, more abundant relationship, mm-hmm. you know, which, which is something I've had to learn the hard way multiple times, because although I thought I was communicating in a healthy manner, it might not have been the healthiest manner for my partners. Mm-hmm you know? Yeah. You can take trial and error and people sharing how, you know, the intention can be different than the impact. Oh my God. So true, dude. Yeah. I find that almost 99% of the time when people are hurt is that not a lot of human beings want to hurt. So, I mean, there are some people, you know, because of their own trauma, but a lot of times most pain is, is caused not with intention but it doesn't take any of the gravity away mm-hmm. from the pain. Mm-hmm. And it certainly doesn't, you know, um, scapegoat the person that's causing the pain. But it is really important to look at, you know, was this intentional or was it not? And if it wasn't, where is it coming mm-hmm. from? You know, totally. and to take a step back, especially when you're the, when you're quote unquote the victim and you've been, you're the person in pain. I mean, both people are usually part victim, but you know, when you take a step back and you can sit in your own pain, but also look at the pain of another who's, who's, you know, probably causing you some pain. I think that's like the, at least for me has been sort of the gateway to a lot of growth because it is very easy to just sit in pain and be like, well, I'm a victim. This person is X, Y, and Z. They're not a good person. Mm -hmm. And rarely is that the case. You know, usually there's, there's a plethora of different involvement in that. And when I've stepped back and been like, yeah, I'm hurt like very badly, but where is this coming from as well too? Cause I know that, that they know they don't want to hurt me, mm-hmm. you know, like, like what is influencing their trauma and then what's influencing my response too, you know? Yeah. And I think the quicker you can do that, the, the, like the better you get it being able to sort of catch yourself in the situation where you are triggered. Because, you know, if you have to continuously take two weeks after being angry or, or shutting down to step back and sort of review that trauma, you're not going to, get very good quickly at being able to change how you're responding in a situation. Yeah. And it takes time, right? Cause I, this is a, a newer practice for me within the past three or four years. And by all means it, I continuously, 
fail at it and then recognize <laughs> and then adjust and try to in different, you know, different ways. But does that, is that something that you, that you'd agree with or do you have a different approach? No, I agree with that. And I think, you know, the failure around it is also a part of the learning process and getting better and becoming stronger at communicating and looking at really sounds like what you're talking about is integrity. Seeing, you know, where your side is at and within the interaction instead of blaming that there's always something to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I think the hardest things in a lot of relationships, especially at the end point is when some person, you know, one person is really looking at their faults and their contribution to the relationship and the other person isn't, but yet Mm -hmm. both people still want to maintain amicability. You know, I see that in my own past relationships and a lot of friends that were in serious relationships, you know, when they split up, there's still a lot of love there and they still want to be connected on some level, which I think is really healthy. But I, I personally think that can only exist if both people commit to some sort of growth because you can't be the same two people that hurt each other and just be amicable. It just, it just doesn't really work like that, you know, cause, cause you, then, then you're like, you, the same person is like the same trauma exists, the same trigger exists. So both people, even if you're trying to maintain a friendship, and this is my perspective, I want to hear yours too, is that, you know, you don't have to be in a loving relationship, but you can be like, you know, I still want you in my life, but we both have to sort of work on what we did to, you know, hurt each other. And if we can get at that point, well, we can rebuild trust and respect and actually have a friendship. You know, would you agree with that? Or do you think it's a different? different So I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying that at an end of a relationship, you think if they're going to be friends, then they need to talk about friends or continue one or continue. It's almost like, Yes. So I'll, I'll rephrase it and I'll, I'll relate it to like conscious containers, right? Conscious container relationships is what we kind of started with. So like relationship A, the first relationship with these two individuals is container A, right? Okay. That relationship breaks open, there's trauma and both people are either, I don't know what they're going to decide, but they're going to split up or they're going to stay together. Regardless of what they do, they have to sort of have another container because the old container was used to its capacity mm-hmm. and you can't sit in the old container trying to maintain a relationship, whether it's a friendship or a partnership, a romantic one. At least that's my perspective because there's some people that will end a relationship and they'll just be like, well, let's be amicable, but they don't work to, to grow mm-hmm. or they don't work to change the things that blew up their first container. You know? Yes. I guess that's what I'm trying yes, to say. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. I'm following you. And I, you know, I really do agree with that. I think that I don't even know if it's possible to just shift into that kind of okay, now we're friends or now everything's fine because it's a kind of stuffing down, right? Or, or maybe pretending mm-hmm. even that certain parts of it didn't yeah. happen. But I'm reminded again of Esther Perel and after infidelity, she sometimes asks couples, do you basically, I can't remember exactly what she says, but basically, do you want to have another relationship? Do you want to be married again? And do you want it with the same person that you can create this whole other structure, container, marriage or friendship if you no longer want to be romantic? But yeah, I do think it takes a lot of awareness and accountability and restructuring. And at least for me, when I'm thinking of it, really coming at, in, at one another vulnerably as, a, as opposed to just using blanket terminology, which sometimes happens like you did this, I did that. Here's a quick way to get over this part so we can be friends or move on. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. We're, I think we're on the same page with this and I'm, it's nice to hear it reiterated that someone that's in the profession of helping people, you know, get to this because I'm, I'm not professional on this level, but that, 
that's just sort of my thought process because, you know, I think that, I think it's quite unfortunate, you know, after, and, and I know some relationships have to end because there's a lot of trauma there. And I, I totally get that. I'm not speaking to those things, but you know, after a four or five, 12 year relationship, you put so much love and so much energy into someone. It it's, it's disheartening to tell, to see people just completely throw that away and just saying, well, what's done it's out. And I, and sometimes I get it. That has to happen for X, Y, and Z completely respectable. But in the instances where, you know, both like there's trauma on both ends, but both people really value each other still and want each other in each other's lives. That's kind of, those are the relationships I'm speaking to. Like you don't necessarily have to just throw the container away and, you know, live this facade fake relationship or not have a relationship. Like if you want to be in each other's lives, you can do that, but you have to put energy into Mm -hmm. it. You have to work. It still takes energy. Yeah. You can't just take out your energy and say, we're going to be friends now, or we're going to continue in this relationship and act like everything's okay. And you can do that. I think that that, I think that most people do that. And that's again, what makes it a conscious relationship is not doing what everyone else is doing. (laughs) Not autopilot. Not autopilot. You have to show up. Show up. Yeah. I know that term it's used everyone now and people are like, what does that even mean? And I'm like, that's a good question. And to me, like showing up is like, it's prioritization, it's energy. It's like you literally showing up. It's like, it's like if there's a class, you know, it's like you have, I had, you know, organic chemistry class when I was a sophomore in college. And sometimes I just didn't show up. Like I still got a good grade because I was reading the book. I just didn't want to go in a 200 person lecture and show up. But that's what I relate it to. Like if it mattered enough to me, my ass would have been in that seat, keeping it warm, mm-hmm. you know, that's impressive. And that's what like love is. That's what friendship is. Right. I mean, literally like if, so, if, if someone is a value to you, you show them that you value them by showing up, you know? And that's what, I think that's what I'm trying to bring up. It's that, you know, it's super important to, uh, be able to like sit in your trauma that they sit in their trauma and realize that you, you both hurt each other and talk about it, but also use that trauma to grow into two better individuals that can still have a friendship or possibly a relationship if you mm-hmm. both, both want that, but you don't always have to throw it away. Yeah. You know, I guess yeah, is my point. You don't, if you, if you have the energy and you have the emotional uh, availability for sure. And I think, yeah, I love, mm. I love that concept of showing up, showing up even when you're messy, even when you're afraid, just showing up, being present. But sometimes yes. I think, you know, I'm just thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And sometimes if a relationship mm-hmm. changes and somebody is restructuring their life or something traumatic has happened, they might not have the availability to prioritize a relationship. I think that's important to recognize too. Sometimes it seems like there's, when I'm thinking about conscious relationships, I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's privileged, if there's some privilege in it to be able to have a conscious relationship, Mm -hmm. to spend the time. Yeah. And I think, I guess from my perspective, we all have the time and I, I completely get what you're talking about is if someone's able to show up, I guess the situation that I'm, that I'm envisioning is if like the person that is emotionally unavailable is also the person that says they want an amicable relationship, you know, but they're not being honest with where they are and their availability and that they're not prioritizing, you know, continuous uh, dedication to building a relationship. Cause I agree. Some people just, they're emotionally unavailable. And I want to talk about that because that's a key term. Um, but, and if, if they, if they are, if they're, if they're not emotionally available, 
you know, how do you navigate that? Because not a lot of people are aware they're emotionally unavailable. You know, it's hard to be aware that you're an emotionally unavailable human being. But it is really important because otherwise you're getting in relationships with people that want emotional availability and you're not able to access that in yourself or give that to another human Mm -hmm. being. So if someone's emotionally unavailable and they still are asking for amicability after relationship, that seems like sort of not unfair to me. You know, would you... It seems unfair to me too. Maybe the person who is emotionally available cannot be in a friendship with the emotionally unavailable person at that time. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. That's the emotionally available person taking care of their needs because oftentimes if it's in a kind of, whether it's a friendship or relationship where one person is available and the other is unavailable, the person who's available ends up doing more work unless they have really strong boundaries and having to figure out what's going Mm -hmm. on. Overgiving. Yeah. And, um, and so maybe the boundary and I've had this experience is okay. No contact then. And I think that can Mm -hmm. also be really healthy, not forever, but you know, I don't think that everyone has the, has the time or availability for partnership or relationships. I truly don't. I think different stages of life, absolutely. Like throughout your life, you will, but different stages of building or what have you, you do. I don't, I don't. I don't personally believe that people do. Do you think it's a, it's a, they don't, or they just not prioritizing it at that stage? I think that they aren't prioritizing it for a lot of the times, good reason. Like if you're, for instance, trying to find work or building your career or, you know, with there's health problems or your family needs your whatever, you don't have the emotional availability, which is the key piece that we're talking about to be able to be in partnership. And so maybe you could have like friends with benefits if you talk about it. And that could be a conscious relationship if you talk about it and it's, there's consent and both people want that or all people want that. But yeah, I don't think everyone Mm. can prioritize a conscious relationship all the time. Yeah. That brings up a really good point. It's something that I've struggled with, with who I am. It's that when I see, you know, other folks so focused on their career or so focused on being an athlete, um, that they lose sight of prioritizing relationships. And this will sound judgmental, but this is what I believe. I believe that like the most important thing to me, and I would, I would hope this is in most humans, what we're working towards Mm -hmm. is human connection. Because, you know, if you take humans away from one human, the, the, the health decreases, like the life expectancy decreases. I mean, we're meant to be around other people, even at our most introverted state, you know? Um, And of course we have our certain kind of people we like to be around, but if we're consistently just focusing on career, and on you know getting better at X, Y, and Z, those are awesome. Those are awesome external goals. But you know, when we get to sort of our deathbed, our end of life, we look back and those things are great. But if we spent the 20 years of our life, we could have been building, you know, healthy relationships, good connections, deep connections, vulnerable connections. I find it hard to believe that like that is very authentic, like to mm-hmm. our humanness. Because we sort of build the society where, especially in capitalism, where like we're told, you know, get a bunch of letters after your name, you know, be a famous person, be a pro X, Y, and Z, all fine things to strive for. But if you get any of those things, if you look at it in society, the people that are happy doing those things have real connections. The people that are uh, doing that, like are at that level that don't have real deep connections or healthy relationships, they're just as miserable as someone that isn't at that mm-hmm. status of society mm-hmm. in career, you know? And so that, that's sort of what keeps in my mind is like the, the most important thing I think to being human is, is understanding 
connection with oneself and with another. And that's literally mm-hmm. love, you know, no, in, in 100%. so many ways. Do you think? I, okay. Because I, I, I guess that's I what I agree yeah, with you. I think, you know, lo- I'm devoted to love. I'm devoted to studying love and studying loveless conditioning within our societies. And I think it's the most important thing. Absolutely. Connection with ourselves, connection with other people. I think that's how we have healthier systems in place is by having healthier partnerships and relationships and families. And at the same time, I'm not saying somebody who's like a pro whatever, and they're spending all their time devoted to that. I'm saying maybe for a chunk of time, like two or three years, somebody doesn't have the time to build a partnership because they're building their business so intently. Mm -hmm. So it would actually be... um, wouldn't be healthy for the other person actually to not be getting receiving attention and reciprocation. And so that's a better way of me explaining that is sometimes I think we do have times in our lives where we, if we aren't already in a relationship and can communicate with that, that with our partner, like, Oh, I'm going through this time where I'm not going to be able to be a hundred percent. How can we structure this? But if you're, if you're not in a relationship yet, you might not be able to start one then, or for instance, after the end of a relationship, For however long it takes you to heal, if you're still feeling emotionally connected to that person and you don't feel ready to have another connection, I would say that's also another time where you're not available for another partnership. I think it's really important for that person that's focusing on, you know, that two or three year goal or the career or whatever it is to be honest with people that they're dating or, you know, with, because I think that's where the problems arise, right? When like that Mm -hmm. person falls in love but they're still very focused on their career, their goal or whatever there is that's external from the relationship. And the relationship doesn't get the prioritization or the attention it deserves. I remember being in couples counseling last May and the couples counselor told both of us, you know, she's like, you both can have your hobby or your athletics. You can have your career and you have the relationship. But if one of those things is prioritized more than the other continuously, the relationship is not going to work out. You know, you have to prioritize the relationship at the same level, not all the time, but most of the time as your career and your hobbies and your friendships and your family, everything else. But if your family's prioritized more than the relationship or your career or, you know, your finances or whatever, you know, your athletics, uh, speaking of my relationship specifically, you know, the relationship is going to be deficient on one side or the other. And then when it's deficient, one person over time is going to feel like they've been putting in too much or, or more, you know, and, and they haven't been getting back like naturally, you know, and of course you have natural seesaws. It's never always hundred percent 50, 50, but the point is to sort of like to bring mm-hmm. up the dancing sort of imagery again is like you're, you're dancing with each other. You know, it's not just one person dancing to a song and then the other person shows up every Saturday. They're mm-hmm. like, Oh, Hey, you're here again. Totally. You know? Great. Let's, mm-hmm. let's dance the same song, you know? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I you're, what I hear you saying is that it takes buy-in. Both people need to be invested, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier. And um, if both people aren't invested at at least the majority of the time at the same level, then there's going to be inequality within the relationship. It's not going to feel reciprocated. Amen to that. I, I completely hear that. And that's something that I've, as I read more about it and, you know, I have experience in my own personal life with that. It's again, it just goes back to communicating. Like, you know, you have to really communicate with both, both parties. And it, it's hard when someone doesn't realize that they're deficient, you know, when, when someone yeah. thinks that they're giving enough or thinks that they're showing up enough, 
And the other person is like, what? Like, what, what, where, where are you getting this data from? You know, um, it, it's really hard to navigate those situations. And that's when I believe, you know, like a professional or like some outside help helps because, you know, you can go into that setting and this person can sort of act as like the scale to be like, no, actually they're right. You're really not showing up, you know? And, and in that case, if the person still doesn't change their action, I mean, that's when people sort of need to reevaluate if it's mm-hmm. really functional for both human beings to be together. Cause it, that person showing up might meet someone else on that level that might be okay with someone else, but you know, might not be okay with you. And that's totally fine. Of course, it's hard to let go of the situations when you're, you know, deeply in love with someone, but we all find ourselves there at some point. I've I imagine had that situation. Yeah. Life. And it is, it's so painful. Yes. Is there anything more painful than a heartbreak where you really, really, really were in love with that person? I mean, when you were talking earlier about masculinity and courage, I was thinking, is there anything more courageous than truly being devoted to another person or devoted to love? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Devoted to growth. For yeah. Sure. Devoted to growth, but especially love. It's so, it can crush you and it can, yeah. you can, it can break you open as opposed to just breaking you. Right. Which is kind of what you were saying earlier too. Yes. Yes, it, it, it can totally consume you inwardly or it can sort of crack you open and have your expansive, you know, you expand. And I think it, it's done both to me in both situations. Um, I've had to sort of come super internal when I'm so hurt and to get to such a low point to where the trauma is so much to where I, I basically have a choice either to be stuck there or to try to navigate it mm-hmm. and use it to be better, you know? I want to get to defining emotional unavailability because that's a term that so many people (laughs) use and I know it means different things for different people, but it's nice to sort of just talk about like what it legitimately is in romantic relationships. Can you speak about that? I don't actually know the textbook definition of emotional availability offhand, (laughs) but (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm not asking for textbook. I'm just asking for your your vibe on it. Yeah, as a, as a yeah, therapist. Yeah, emotional availability to me is when a person is aware of their emotional reality, their emotional landscape. Um, so what can even be awesome there is how their feeling matches with the sensations in their body, right? Especially if you have trauma responses, being able to explain that first acknowledge it for yourself and then communicate it to a partner and to have the availability to receive that from a partner and also to take in feedback and to uh, be able to look at your behaviors and shift them if you need to, or to set boundaries if you don't think you need to change your behaviors. That's pretty spot on. Honestly, I, I don't know the textbook definition either, but with what's in my mind, I'm like, yeah, that's totally what I envision on some level too, with emotional unavailability, unavailability, Mm -hmm. sorry, my, uh, my (laughs) words are mixing together. It's it's late. Um, so if someone is emotional, emotionally unavailable and they're aware of it, what are steps that they can take to be more available on their own without, you know, going to see a professional, which I think is is super healthy for everybody. But, you know, obviously reading, obviously there's different spirituality practices you can get into, but are there some steps to sort of be aware of when you're being emotionally unavailable? Because the first step is like to be aware that you are emotionally unavailable instead of just being like, no, 
I'm being great right now. Yeah. I think if somebody's in that stage of being great right now, sometimes it does take pain to get to the point of change. Mm-hmm. Um, or somebody yeah. else who's really, really patient and can explain it to that person. <laughs> but the, you know, the yeah. first step is becoming emotionally unavailable to yourself because if you can't accept all of your emotions, acknowledge and accept them, then you're not going to be able to accept other people's emotions. That's just simply how it works, right? There's not going to be that piece where you can fit that puzzle piece mm-hmm. of theirs inside of you. You're not going to understand one another. So, um, you know, emotional literacy, I really love feelings wheel, slap that shit on a fridge. And, um, you know, when you're walking by, take a beat, take a few breaths, sense into what's going on in your body and acknowledge what it is that you're feeling and notice that, oh, I can feel sad and angry and happy at the same time. That's wild. You know, that just, just beginning to, um, have emotional agility really. Those are really great terms, all three of those. And they, they definitely, were you going to say something else? So. <laughs> I could keep talking, but okay. <laughs> no, no, I didn't go want ahead. to interrupt you, but emotional agility sounds very healthy to me, especially being able to be emotionally agile in situations that you are experiencing. Oh my heavy goodness. Emotion, yes. You know, um, like anger or like pain, you know? Um, and I, I think that's, yeah, you, you, you bring up a good point about pain because I think that I 100% agree with this is that, with individuals and, and everyone experiences trauma on certain levels, everybody, right? But a lot of people are unaware. Like for instance, someone that grew up in a very sort of standardized household um, that there wasn't any like, you know, I, I would say like trauma mm-hmm. with a big T, like very much a blatant trauma, you know, there was little bits of trauma, you know, um, the mom or dad influence situations this way. A lot of times people come out of that relationship, they're just like, oh, I had a great childhood, yes. you know, I didn't, I didn't witness any sort of trauma. And that specific individual that, you know, if they're emotionally unavailable, it's, it's almost like they need some, and, and it sucks to say, but you sort of need some sort of traumatic experience in your life to crack you open to sort of, you have to reach the bottom of the barrel before you realize that you have a problem on a certain mm-hmm. level, you know, that you have to yeah, change Yeah. In a certain something. way, it sounds like you're talking about a dark night of the soul. Those moments that I've had so many times in my life and mm. other people obviously have throughout time where you're meeting the depths of yourself and you choose in those moments to learn from it um, afterwards and to integrate that into your new way of being. And it's also, if you don't have a dark night of the soul yet, um, trying to implement some rite of passage in your life, because in Western society, we don't have many rites of passage. I mean, I'm thinking for some women, I tried to do this. I did this for my little sister, her first menstruation. I made that a big rite of passage. You know, I wanted to make it a big deal, but I, in general, other than that, for some women, there aren't many. I know that there's some organizations like sacred sons who are trying to do that for men, but I think it's really important to have Mm -hmm. that throughout your life, even just celebrating big moments and making that a pivotal, okay, I'm coming into this, I'm putting on this new suit. I'm trying on this new archetype. I'm like embodying this different part of myself. Yes. So much yes to that, dude. I completely agree. The rites of passage thing is really interesting because it almost takes me to like medieval times when Mm -hmm. someone's knighted, you know, it's like, we don't really have, um, that, um, any of those rituals, uh, as, as far as like in, you know, uh, Western culture in modern society where, you know, uh, for instance, when someone experiences their first heartbreak, 
it's usually like, oh, bummer. Mm-hmm. It happens to everybody, you know? That's um, it. It, it, it. You would think that like, you know, you would have a support system and hopefully you can talk, everyone can share about their own mm-hmm. experience with heartbreak. And it's, you know, you can be um, encouraged to use the pieces and grow yes. and learn from it. Learn from the times that you shut down or you made mistakes, right? Instead of being like, you know, surrounding yourself with people like, oh, the other person was totally in the wrong. You yes, deserve better. Do that. You know, um, <laughs> you're, you're great. Right. Cause it's it, that's so quite easy. easy. You know, it's quite easy to yeah. go that route. No, totally. I love, I love this is sounding, it sounds kind of bad, but I love doing heartbreak integration with clients because there's so much growth mm-hmm. that can come from that. And we really don't give it its due in our, in our society because it oftentimes feels like a funeral, right? It's a, it feels like death. We need yep. to grieve it. We need to learn from yep. it. If you were really all in or else we're all going to be in our fifties jaded as hell, which is not what I want or twenties or whatever, yes. you know, and, and people do walk around with that jaded right. and not wanting to open their hearts again. And oof, I just think it's such important work. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I think that looking at my own life, the, the times I've grown the most as a man, as a human being, um, in any way have been the biggest times of trauma in my life. You know, when I lost my grandfather age mm-hmm. 22, um, I mean, it took probably be like seven years to legitimately grieve that loss. Cause he was my only father figure in life. But I learned throughout each step of like that grieving process, specifically because I was, I was looking to learn. I wasn't just mm-hmm. looking for sadness. I was looking for yeah. lessons, you know? Um, because a lot of times you could just get stuck in sadness, get stuck in, um, rumination of, you know, like deconstructive thoughts, not constructive thoughts, you know? And then the other two times was my first real heartbreak when I was 22, 23. And then my most recent separation in May, like all these times have sort of influenced the biggest chapters of growth in my adult life, you know? Um, and I think, I think when I I explain it this way, like, you know, when we have a, a huge traumatic, um, event that happens, the door swings open a door somewhere inside of us swings open but we have a choice we can either walk through it and we experience a new part of ourselves we haven't seen yet because we haven't been in that door it had to swing open and the key was to experience that trauma or to have that experience or we can turn around and walk back the other way because we don't want to go that way and those lead to two things we either stay the same or we change Mm -hmm. on some level you know and we we have a choice though every time and we can choose to run and to hide from that doorway or we can walk through it and walking through it might not feel great for the first bit of it. Right. It, it probably won't. You're almost guaranteed. It's going to feel like shit. Um, but from my perspective, that's the way we all should be walking. Yeah. Through the door. If we can, through the door of our own pain. Yeah. Yeah. And there's probably a lot in most of yeah. us. Imagine it's not just one big one, no, totally. probably a lot of small ones, you know? It takes a lot of um, courage to do that, to face yeah. our pain. And I think that's how people get stuck yeah. at certain stages of their lives. Or if we're talking about archetypes, like I think that's how some people get stuck in that night stage, maybe, or the warrior of conquering of, um, you know, whether mm. it's women or never feeling like you're doing enough with work or whatever. And instead instead of focusing on the things like you were mentioning connection that truly matter things that you're actually going to give a shit about when you're on your deathbed. It's that, what can I do to prove myself over and over? Because it's too hard in their minds to walk through the door of their pain. Yeah. Yes. Before we get into, cause I really wanted to touch on um, 
sort of modern society and how relationships are integrated into monogamy and polyamory in this conversation, because, you know, you have a, a ton of experience in that. I've heard you speak about it before. Um, but I want to talk about contentment before we get into that, because, you know, one thing I've seen myself struggle with specifically with like the evolution of social media and how our society has evolved into, there's always something better, you know, like there's always something to be striving for, even with us talking about relationships and we can relate it back to sort of, you have to have rest days again, right? For me, like I, I remember when I was sort of running full time that I never felt content. Like it didn't matter what I won or what I did or how fit I was just nothing was good enough, you know? And I realized that like how that proliferated in my entire life, in all aspects of my intimate relationships or work relationships. And I constantly revisit that idea to sort of check myself to see, am I balancing contentment with Mm. progression? You know, because if I'm just focused on progress and growth, there's no rest days. And if I'm just content, I'm not really growing at -hmm. all. I'm not really, you know, changing more positively. And I wanted to bring that up first because I think that directly sort of morphs into, you know, how we're seeing monogamy and polyamory evolve in our society, you know, because I think that um, I've been, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've just noticed more and more people speaking openly about polyamory and and non-monogamous relationships. And it seems to be, you know, uh, maybe just people are more comfortable speaking about it too publicly. But, you know, I hear more people talk about like, I'm in an E&M, mm-hmm. ethically non-monogamous relationship, or I'm in a polyamorous relationship, you know, with multiple, you know, lovers. And I, I find when I, when I look at it, you know, a lot of these relationships from my point of view will work for a X amount of time, one, two, three years or whatnot. But at some point, something goes wrong, you know, something for, for, from my perspective, like something goes wrong where you know, one of the partners ends up falling more in love and just wants to have a monogamous relationship or, you know, something happens. And then I question, like, are we really, you know, as a generality again, because some of them do work out and it's completely healthy for all parties, but are we really being pushed in sort of this, you know, have multiple partner space because we're just not content with anything? Like, you know, we always need more, you know, that's why we keep swiping. That's why we keep scrolling. You know, we can never be content with one person. So I'll just fill all the voids in me with seven people. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know you I have, do a, have bunch. a bunch. It's such a tricky thing to talk about, though, you know, especially as a therapist. It is. Because I have my own views and I have the way that I want to hold other people's experiences, too. Um, can you talk about it from both sides? Do you think that's okay? Yeah, I can try and navigate this right now. So first of all, I want to say I don't have a ton of experience. I have a few years of experience and probably seven years of exploration um, or maybe six years of exploration, but that exploration Mm. was not necessarily in practice. (laughs) So um, I've never had more than one primary partner at a time. Um, But in going back to your original question right now, I think it's really important food for thought Do. Um, I also think that it's what feels important to me is not, not just, not just falling into compulsory monogamy, if that's not something that actually aligns with you. And maybe throughout time, throughout your life, throughout whatever's happening in your life, you will want different frameworks, right? And so navigating that within your own self and your own needs is really important. So having consciousness around that awareness and being able to communicate, right? But 
I think that, or I wonder rather, if sometimes I don't. I I'm, I feel nervous to talk about this right now for some reason. I do. <laughs> You're putting me on the spot. Putting you on the um, spot here, Tani. It feels really alive for me. I hope you you can edit that part out. It just feels really alive for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had something, you know, very similar in the last relationship that I had that I ended and I'm in no, no contact with. So, um, but in general, I think that sometimes and not always, But sometimes I wonder about this framework as a way, the non-monogamy or polyamory framework, as a way to not to go deeper into one's ways of being or their coping mechanisms, defense mechanisms in their life, right? So really recognizing what is my intention and am I protecting my heart in this relationship? Mm -hmm. Does this relationship style, do I feel vulnerable or do I feel safe? Um, And safety is generally good, but when I'm saying safety in this way, I mean it, are you feeling like you're in a position of power? If you're, and if you're approaching Mm -hmm. non-monogamy or polyamory from a position of power, then, um, and you have that awareness, then I would think it's really important to talk to a therapist about that. Because um, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something underneath. Maybe you're scared to be vulnerable. And I think that also when it comes to this kind of framework Mm -hmm. of love is limitless within Western society, we have capitalism and patriarchy within ourselves, basically. So looking at do I value women? Do I have some misogynistic traits within me? Am I enacting patriarchal culture as a way to have mm-hmm. multiple relationships, whether or not you're a man or woman, you know? Um, and do you actually have right. the time and space to have multiple relationships? Also, can your nervous system handle it? Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Yep. No, I, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm like, totally, because it's hard enough to nail one, you know, and then you add two or three and I'm looking at people like, guys, that shit has to be hard unless you're sort of, again, emotionally unavailable and you're, and you're in these relationships sort of half, you know, one foot in the door, one foot out the door. And I think that's what you bring up. It's, it's like, you know, if you're not fully present in each of these situations, are you sort of catching yourself being avoidant in a certain way where you don't really have to fully give to one person? That's why you sort of Mm -hmm. give like, you know, one third to each of these people. Are you having multiple casual relationships? And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's important to say that, but is that mm-hmm. just a cat? Is that okay. a casual relationship? Are you calling it polyamory or, um, or non-monogamy when in reality you're wanting a casual relationship? And maybe that's semantics, but I think it is really important intentionality-wise when speaking to partners about it because if they want you to ha- be all in, which the idea of polyamory is limitless love, you can have multiple loves, right? But then. I mean, also Mm. the counter argument to that is we don't have limitless resources though. So including time and emotional availability, but I think that if multiple people want this kind of relationship where they may not, everybody wants to be all in, maybe they want to hang out sometimes, have sex, uh, Mm. co-regulate together, have people to go to 
do things with. And that's fine. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. If you communicate about it, then good, go do that. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. I don't think that monogamy or polyamory is inherently better or worse than one another. I think it's just really important to look at, is this coming from a place of fear of getting close and really deep to myself and other people? Um, or is this to experience more joy and love? Yep. That brings it down to the, the, um, old, uh, term of like, you know, every choice that you ever make is made out of two things, two base emotions, which is either in fear or in love, you know, which I, I really like that you bring that up. And, and I didn't bring this up to sort of say like, you know, I'm against polyamory or if someone has an open relationship or, but I think what we're talking about is just being honest for what you want and being able to communicate with each other. Cause there are going to be people I'm sure that you can find that are going to be like you, if you want polyamory or if you want, you know, an ethically non-monogamous relationship, that doesn't mean it's going to work out, but nor does being in a monogamous Mm -hmm. relationship mean it's going to work out. You know, with my own experience, like for me, I'm just a very monogamous person because I just, I don't know. I think I'm just get too jealous. And, um, I also, you know, just, I, I I love the idea of, of giving myself everything I have to one human being. I love sort of that idea of, you know, it might be my, my Catholic, you know, how I was raised in Catholicism. It, it definitely is, you know, my upbringing, but I think it's like, it's just mine. And I, and I've, I've sort of thought about, you know, all these different aspects, you know, I'm, I'm neither for nor against any of them completely. But for me, it's like, and this is my personal opinion is that I think there's something so beautiful in two people meeting and giving themselves to their fullest capacity for one another. You know, I think to, in my mind, like, I think there's just something so sacred in that. And it has nothing to do with, I think the religious biases, but it's just in my framework of like, man, it's really difficult as two individuals with, you know, all these different synapses happening in our brain to cohabitate and coexist with another human being for X amount of years. And it still work. And you still wake up every morning and love each other. And you're still excited and invigorated to explore and experience life together, you know? Um, And that's again, just my perspective from my, that's, that's my opinion. And it's definitely not right or wrong in all situations, but that's just like, you know, my take on monogamy. That being said, I've had many friends that I've talked to that are in polyamorous relationships and, you know, some of them worked out, some of them haven't, but the theme that I've seen when I really ask about them, and again, it's a small sample pool that I'm talking about, but it's really like a lot of the people in these relationships that I've observed just didn't seem content. So they're just like, okay, well, why don't we just have an open relationship? Mm -hmm. Because I'm just not getting all my needs met from this one person. Um, So I'll just add two or three, you know? And then it, it sort of, again, splits that emotional availability because we only have 24 hours in a day and we just, it's just quite hard, you know, especially if there's requirements from certain partners that they want us to show up on certain levels and where we just can't because we have multiple. And, you know, I think that it's so important. That's one of the reasons why, polyamory doesn't feel up for me at this time anymore because um, I think that within eroticism and within growth too, including erotic growth or confidence, that we need times of rest or alone time. Or and if we're constantly uh, if we're constantly reaching out to other people or if we're constantly online or whatever, getting dopamine hits, what have you, then we're not facing our existential loneliness, yep. which I think is incredibly important to do. And so yes. sometimes the argument is monogamy seems codependent, 
But in reality, for some people, polyamory or non-monogamy can be very codependent because it's this forever around yes. other humans instead of facing your own pain. Again, you can't be alone. Because you can't be alone. Like you just don't want any time alone because sitting alone, again, forces you, if you're not on your phone, if you're not distracting, like truly being alone, forces you yeah. to face that existential loneliness. And I think that that's interesting you bring that up because that's what I think in my head is that a lot of times, you know, I find people in these relationships, they just don't want to be alone. Like mm -hmm. they don't want to spend a moment alone. You know, they want to you know, spend at someone else's house or have someone over all the time because being alone is to sort of admit yeah. to loneliness and have to face it on some level, you know, and, ju and just being physically alone doesn't mean you're going to face it because you can scroll totally. on Instagram for eight hours and you can watch YouTube until you fall asleep. But, but literally sitting down and being alone and not doing anything and being like that old childhood boredom before smart before smartphones existed, like that's when you fucking find yourself in that funk of like, oh, there is that loneliness. And I think for me, until like I address that, and that's what I'm currently working on, I don't know if I can fully give everything I have to give until I understand that deep part of my soul and that sort of, you know, um, streamlined loneliness that exists. But what I what you, I like what you said. I think it exists within all of us. I think mm -hmm. it's very human, you know. Um, it keeps us very honest and, um, and not all polyamorous relationships are trying to avoid loneliness. That's not what I'm saying. I'm sure that's not what you're saying, but I just noticed the theme, you know, in, in, in when we spend, cause you can even be in a monogamous relationship. It's been 24 seven with someone and never both have your alone time to even miss that person, right. let alone get to know yourself yeah. better. Or not even just spending 24 seven, but also just if you're constantly on YouTube or on social media, which, you know, <laughs> I can be bad at that too. You know, it's like, yeah. when are you just facing yourself? Because that's, that's such a huge part of growth. We can't, it's a rite of passage to face that, that growth, that pain, that aloneness, right? So if we're constantly bypassing that, I think we're going to be stunted. And then we might look for frameworks like monogamy or non-monogamy or polyamory as a way to be a salve when in reality it doesn't fucking matter. It's what it's what's underneath. How do you numb in those relationships? You know, how do you show your anger in those relationships? How do you set boundaries yeah. in those relationships? How are you in conflict? How do you self-soothe? Like that's way more important than the framework. In my opinion. Yes, totally. No, I, I'd agree with you. And again, you you have more experience because you are a therapist. I'm not, but I, uh, I, I definitely, you know, seen, you know, friends go through polyamorous relationships, myself and monogamous relationships that have, you know, um, ended as well. Like th there are themes within both of them. And, and really it is about like, you know, having the capacity for yourself as well as another human being, you know, and it's, I think it is harder to be in a polyamorous relationship because you, there's multiple human beings involved, especially if you're mm -hmm. trying to love everyone at the same capacity. Um, it's not, it's certainly not impossible. I don't think, but you know, I, I do think that as humans, we do have limitations. And you know, when I just think about death, for instance, like we're on a, a timeline, each and every one of us, like the only certainty since we're born is that we are all going yeah. to die. Each one of us, you know, everything else is sort of, up to circumstance chance you know there's a lot of things that go in there but we most certainly don't have to you know follow any any cookie mm -hmm. cutter or any um you know flow to get to the end yeah. we will get to the end no matter what you know time, our time is finite and i think with that in mind you know 
are we able to fully love multiple people at the same time? For me, I don't think I have that capacity. Um, but maybe others do. Like for me, I can I can fully love one person at one time, you know. But if I was going to be with someone else, my I, my love would would most certainly decrease or not exist for, you know, the, mm. the first person. It sounds like you have that awareness, yeah. And I think I think it's incredibly important to have that level of awareness if you want to be in a conscious relationship. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree with you. It really doesn't matter how many partners you have. It's just about having that awareness of, again, like you brought up, you know, why are you in this relationship, whether it's monogamous or not, you know, are you doing mm-hmm. it to avoid or are you really doing it yes. to be fully authentic and vulnerable and show it's up to a, your It's a great question. Capacity, and, right? and I mean, for me, when I ask myself, what am I most scared of? Like, what's the thing that scares me the most? Because I want to go towards that. To me, that's, being devoted to another person Mm. in the relationship and growth. And so that looks like a two-party system. And I'm not saying that I'm ready for that now, but I think really becoming aware of that is, is transformational because maybe for somebody, their deepest fear is to have multiple relationships and they've had really great relationships and they want to give it a go, you know? So I think that can also be a really helpful inquiry too. What really scares me? What would, what would be the most vulnerable thing I could do? I love how you bring that up. Like, what is your deepest fear? That is such a good question. And that's something I've asked myself before. Um, I would take these school of life online courses. They're, they're held in London, but during COVID it was from people all around the world. You sit in a zoom room and you nice. talk to a professor at the school of life. And one of the, um, one of the prompts for every class, whether it was on love or self-knowledge or work relationships, whatever, they would do this um, sort of uh ambiguous questionnaire where, where it would say like, what are you most afraid of? You know, this is when one of their love classes and there was a theme there. A lot of people, you know, said it's interesting, like, like the theme of that exists in our deepest selves is sort of like what brings us together and makes you feel less alone because you're like, wow, I'm not the only mm-hmm. person struggling with these. You know, if I were to be honest with myself and I think about this a lot, like my deepest fear is probably mm-hmm. being alone or dying alone or dying with never fully being loved on the level that I'm loving, you know? Um, and when I, when I say that out loud and when I would write that in the class, that would be a theme with a lot of people. Like they were really afraid of not meeting someone that was going to love them or going to meet them where they are, or, you know, they were going to be able to fully be themselves around, you know? And I find that that's really interesting in our society. that's so digitally connected that like the majority of the worries in these classes was that to be forever until Mm -hmm. the end disconnected you know, and not, not find. So it's interesting when you say your deepest fear is, um, you know, being in, in the committed, like, is that, that's what you said, right? In like a one-person relationship, like yeah, I think everything into this relationship. A more fair assessment would be to say, to be deeply known, to be really intimate with somebody, be really seen. And that is reminding okay. me of what you're saying too, because it yeah. sounds like you might be talking about, and these people might be talking about emotional loneliness. Yes. Yes. Most definitely not, not the physical feeling of being alone, but most definitely like the, the absence of emotional connectivity to another person and feeling truly valued and also being able to Mm -hmm. truly value another human being. Yeah. 
So it just interested me. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. Cause when I, when I see those parallels in those classes, I'm like, wow, you know, when, when people talk openly about it, it really makes you feel less alone to an extent because I'm like, wow, other people really are struggling with these feelings. It's not just, you know, I'm not just living a siloed life in my mm-hmm. head. It's, it's yeah. really a theme in, in a lot of people, you know, and obviously there's that baseline loneliness, but of course this adds to that, you know, when someone is, you know, especially when you've had experience with people that you've been in love with and you just haven't been met on that level. Yes. That's what I was thinking of too. It's like, you can actually be in committed relationships and not be intimately connected, not be emotionally connected. 100%. It can feel so lonely, even if you are in a committed monogamous 20 year relationship. And so that intimacy is probably what a lot of us are desiring. Um, but it takes so much self-awareness and so much vulnerability and so much just raw heartedness beyond ego, right? Just soul to soul. Yep. Yes. Completely agree. And you have to build it. It doesn't just like start with the flip of a switch. It's like both of you work towards building it. And I, re- I appreciate how you brought up, like you can be in a relationship and still be immensely lonely because that was another theme is that, you know, there were, there would be like a one person from a married couple of a 20 or 30 year marriage. And that person would literally be saying that they're extremely lonely emotionally mm-hmm. in their relationship, you know, and they could be being met, you know, they could be, you know, it's the finances are great. Like they're both great parents. And, um, you know, even if their sex life is healthy, but like there's, there's this emotional disconnection. And that was sort of the main theme with a lot of people. It's that that's what, that's what people were yearning for is for someone to meet them there. And the questions that followed were, how do I get my partner or how do I find someone if you're single that is at that level? And from my perspective, it's just, you have to ask the the questions. You have to be able to ask the questions and be able to sort of, you know, say like, oh, this person is just, you know, probably not that person for me. Even if I am very attracted to them physically, or even if they are hyper-intelligent and well-read, they might not be on that level that you're looking for emotionally, whether that's higher or lower. You know, and and another important piece to that too, is even if you have an incredibly amazing emotionally connecting relationship, it's not going to be like that all the time. And so sometimes we are going to be lonely. And I Mm -hmm. think that's just a part of what it means to be human. And Buddhism talks about that too, right? That we, we will just feel that loneliness, that incompletion. And there's the romantic view. I think that's spoken about in what is it Plato's symposium or something where it's like you could you search your life for your other half but then but and that's beautiful and wonderful right. but then if you have your other half or that other person you're still going to feel lonely sometimes and so in what way do you connect with your highest self or your highest good or and it doesn't ha- I don't mean it in a religious way but it, is yes. it when you look at a sunset or when you cry really really deeply where you're like shaking yep where can you give yourself more of that too? Because that connection is yeah. equally as important as the connection with another soul. And how do we support another person in their loneliness? Because I think in a lot of relationships, you know, if someone is, is immensely lonely and we can see that is a, it, it, whether it proliferates as depression or a mood or whatever, a lot of times people take it personally and they're like, oh, this, this person is lonely because of something yeah. I'm not doing or because you know, instead of, instead of trying to support or instead of being like, you know, we all feel this way. Right. And it's okay. Sometimes it is the fault of the relationship and it is the cause of the relationship, but sometimes it's not, as you say, 
right? And, but we still, as a relationship, mm-hmm. ha- should be conscious, again, to bring that up, conscientious of where we're at and where our partner's at, communicate, and again, be a support system because you're, you're, the, you're the closest confidant yeah. of that person, you know? Um, and of course, you're not going to solve loneliness for the other person. It's not your job. But I think it's, it's really important in a conscious partnership to be able to sit with someone else's loneliness yes. and not take it personally. Mm-hmm. You know? And to be aware of your own. Because a lot of people don't even realize that they are experiencing loneliness when they're in a certain mood and they don't know mm-hmm. how to verbally say that too. Specifically a lot of mm-hmm. men. Yeah. How would you mm-hmm. say to hold space for somebody then who can't communicate what, what's happening for them? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I have that answer yet. I think that's something I'm searching for within myself because, you know, if someone wasn't able to communicate that they're lonely to me, I I would probably make a bunch of different conjectures in my head. You know, knowing myself, I would try to, you know, basically take apart what I'm seeing and, you know, trying to look at my own biases and, and I'm like, okay, what is this person? And then I'm, I'm sort of projecting what I think they're feeling and I'm probably never going to get to what really is the issue. And so I, I think I used to do that quite a bit because I'm a very sort of pragmatic, logical person. You know, I think that way. But when it comes to feelings, deep emotions, it's really hard. You know, you can make attempts, but, and again, I think Elaine talks about this in a lot of his works. You, know, you really need the other side mm-hmm. of the seesaw to kind of communicate yeah. back. You know, you have to have some feedback. You have to, you know, someone has to say like, hey, you know what? I'm just in a bad mood today. And they might not know why. They might not know it's loneliness, but there has to be some form of communication because. I hesitate to recommend that, you know, just make conjectures or guesses. Even if you really know that person, you've been with them for 20 years, that can sort of lead yeah. to assumptions. And that's <laughs> never led me down yeah. the right path personally. Yeah. You know? Really asking what's happening for the other person. <laughs> and what if they don't have the answer? What do you do then? What if they're just like, if they can't say anything, I don't know. Because some, I mean, I think a lot of people do freeze up when when they're experiencing something deep inside, and they haven't really been on that path to look at it. You know, like for me, when I'm feeling something now, it's like I'm immediately looking at where it's coming from, like almost immediately. I'm like, okay, where is this coming from? Am I angry? Am I happy? You know, just that way. And I'm not in a relationship right now, but that way I could communicate it to even if it's a friend or someone, you know, that I'm having a conversation with that day. But there are a lot of people that don't do that. And there, a lot of those people are in relationships and it's quite hard, right. To navigate those, those, uh, communicative, Mm -hmm. communicative differences. I've been on both sides where somebody shuts down and it got to the point where I was unable to handle it anymore, but I often shut, not often, but I shut down as well. And so what, how, how I handle it now is saying, I need some time to process and I'll come to you, whether it's a friendship Mm -hmm. or a family member or a partner when I'm ready to know what's going on. But right now I feel overwhelmed. I feel out of my window of tolerance. And even just saying that. I agree. I think it's important for, yeah, you cut out a little bit there, but I I got most of it. Um, I, I will say that I think it's really important for, for someone that does need space that doesn't need more time to process to not only communicate it, but for the other person to allow that space. But I think, again, it, there has to be a compromise because for myself, like I'm very much a like, 
and this might be a, a, a very male thing, I'm not sure, but like a very much like, let's just talk about it right now and get to a solution or at least get some sort of resolution where like, I'll, I'll admit what was, what's on my side, you do it and let's, let's figure it out. Like, you know, I don't want to, you know, not uh, work on it if there's something that's going wrong, but there are many human beings that just, they're, they're not that quick to the sort of table. They need time to process it, you know, whether it's a week or two weeks or a day or whatever. But my, my, always my hesitation is what if that person says they need time to process and never comes back to the table. Mm-hmm. They just sort of avoid, you know, and they're just, they, they continue to sort of run. And then when you bring it up again, you're just like, and the other person's just like, well, we're doing good now, you know, and then nothing was addressed. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's always my hesitation to be like, oh yeah, like take all the time you need. Because, I mean, if that's you know, your fear, then speaking change, to right? it and, you know, is, is obviously really important. And if you tend towards yeah. being more anxious in a relationship, it can be really helpful to self-soothe in that moment and, and remembering when they come back and do tell mm-hmm. you something that can be really helpful for the person who is shut down if they have it available to them is just explaining sensations then, right? Like I feel this lump in my chest and my stomach feels really tight. Mm. My throat feels constricted. I don't know what's happening right now for me in my body, but I can explain to you my sensations if that would help you, that kind of thing. I love that. That's a very practical piece of advice. And I barely learned sort of that physical manifestation of emotions recently. I read the body keeps the score that was recommended to me by, um, uh, one of my friends is my PT, my physical therapist. And I never thought about like when I'm feeling, whether it's a happy emotion like joy or pain or resentment or anger, where in my body I'm physically feeling it. Yeah. Because it's manifesting somewhere, you know, whether it's a migraine or it's in your chest or in your shoulders or in your, you know, um, your lower back or wherever. And I think that's, that's a great point. Cause that sort of um, objectifies where, whatever the anxiety or the avoidance is. And it's, it's can be more yes. tangible to explain it that way, you know? And that way the other person's like, Oh, okay. This person They're is like, pain. You know, there's a yeah. physical manifestation of pain. They need mm-hmm. to like, yeah. You know, they need to with the caveat, especially if you're anxious that at some point they will return and be able to communicate or show up to the table. Cause again, just speaking from my, like my, my fear is that you tell this person, Oh yes, take your, take your time. And then they never come back yeah. and they just sort of overlook the situation and never address mm-hmm. it. No, totally. And That's where resentment building. can come in. It's really important to communicate it, but it's, it's, it's not the best idea to communicate it when you are not within your window of tolerance because your prefrontal cortex, the part where you can logically think, communicate and connect isn't online. Right. So just yeah <laughs> amen yep me too <laughs> i've made that mistake many times um you know trying to communicate something logically when you're fully thinking with an emotional part of your brain you know and i think that um i, I think uh again i keep harping on both tom but he brings up like the idea of being a teacher and a, and a student a good student and a good teacher and he's like you can't be mm-hmm. a good teacher when you're super pissed off you just can't because you're not going to have enough compassion or empathy. You're not going to see your partner as that inner child. You're just going to give them sort of dictatorial things. Like you must do this. You must change this. It's hurting my feelings. Like this is wrong. Instead of like, I understand why you're responding this way. You know, I really would like to get, you know, 
this and and what would you like and how can we get there? You know, more from a curious, like, let's be healthier Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, you better fucking change now or I'm out the door. Your empathy is no longer there when you're angry a lot of the times. uh, Yes. Yep. hundred percent. And I've learned that, you know, my own life, um, specifically when how I was raised, you know, too, it's, it's very interesting looking back on that, you know, that I've grown up, grown up more as a man. I'm just like, Oh, the more I look at my childhood, the more I see where all my sort of trauma responses trickle into my, you know, most intimate relationships. I'm like, Oh, when I acted this way, I see my nine-year-old self doing mm-hmm. that exact same thing. What a coincidence, you know? So thank you for that tangible uh, explanation. Cause I think that's really important for people is like the physical manifestation of of like trauma in the moment and being able to somehow communicate that. Cause I think that allows yes, space to totally. be created. Too. Yeah. And it's also you know? communicating if you can, what's happening in the moment, maybe not emotionally, but just saying, this is what, this is where I'm at. Right. And then the other person might be able to actually help you co-regulate yeah. into a safer space too, if that's something that you want. Yeah. Yep. Totally. I agree. Well, Tani, we've, we've already taken up two hours. I feel like I could talk to you for seven hours because we just keep going on these sort of brilliant different paths, but, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I think this has already been really great and we've covered a lot here and there's hopefully, you know, people really get some kernels of, yeah, this of goodness super here. Fun. I'm, I'm Thank sure they you. will. Um, and I totally froze and at one point. <laughs> you bet. So yeah no you, you froze you like froze, and then froze i froze and then i i physically froze in a trauma response when talking about polyamory fear moment we had the whole thing happen <laughs> oh man okay well yeah hopefully hopefully the the audio is okay but for uh i guess where people want to find you can you can you chat about where people can find you and where they can you know you're you're a practicing therapist right now and where you treat because i would mm-hmm. love you know, for people that connect with what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, totally. To to, so my name's Tawny Lyons. You. It's T-A-U-N-E-L-Y-O-N-S. And you can find me on Instagram or you can find me at my website, which is just my first and last name, TawnyLyons.com. And um, I see clients virtually in California right now. So if you're looking for somebody who focuses on intimacy, relationships and deconditioning, um, you can reach out to me. <laughs> Tony's your girl. There we go. Thank you so much. This has been brilliant. And maybe we can have you on again as this thing progresses because I'm sure I'm going to have so many more questions and, you know, love it's, it's been a treat to be able to discuss this stuff with you. And I've, I've honestly walking away from this conversation, having already learned a lot just from having a back and forth dialogue. So thank you very much. And I love the name of your show. I love it.